Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. So would you take your Bibles, if you brought one with you, turn to Matthew chapter 15. If you have a digital device with a Bible on it, feel free to look on that. Uh, I'm going to read it off the screen in a moment. So you just look up at the screen and, uh, uh, with me in just a moment. Matthew 15, Matthew's the first book in what we call the New Testament, and it's in the 15th chapter. And I'm going to preach on a story today that's very familiar. I've just never preached on it before. I started a sermon series last week called Little is Much. And we're looking at the Bible at uh, where God took the smallest thing and did something incredible with it. And it's, a, it's an encouragement to us. It's an admonition to us that there is no gift too small to God. Now, I'll talk about finance, but we're not just talking about finance today. We're talking today primarily about you serving God, about you making a difference for the kingdom of God, that you have a purpose in life, and you say, well, preacher, I may not have a whole lot, but God has a purpose for you. Here's what I want to tell you with this sermon today is you have more than you think. Now, I don't, I don't play the lottery. I don't endorse, endorse the lottery. I don't suggest you play the lottery. I do suggest if you, if you were to accidentally play the lottery and you won that you tithe above and beyond if you do. But lottery stories fascinate me. And I read one this week about, it just happened, about a guy in North Carolina that he ran to McDonald's to pick up McDonald's for his kids. And on the way there, Edward Rackley in North Carolina uh, stopped at a dollar country store and bought something called a back scratch lottery ticket. I don't have any idea what that is, but he went to McDonald's with his lottery ticket and just had thrown it in the car. And when he got there, he ordered 50 chicken McNuggets and four plain hamburgers for his kid. He had a couple of 20s in his pocket or something like that. And while he was waiting on his order, because 50 chicken McNuggets sounds like a lot to me, while he's waiting on his order, he decided to scratch off his ticket. And when he did, it said that he had won $200,000. He then did something I probably would not do. He handed the ticket to somebody at McDonald's in the window, the little girl in the window, and said, did I really win that? And she inspected the ticket, and she said, sure enough, you did, and then she gave it back to him, which that would have been the part that would have made me a little nervous, and she gave it back to him. He took it to the lottery uh, uh, board, and after taxes, Edward Rackley bought home $141,000, and he said, Christmas is going to be good for the kids this year. Here's what struck me about the story. Here's a man who pulls up to McDonald's window and he thinks he's got a couple of bucks in his pocket to order 50 chicken McNuggets and four plain hamburgers. But he really had a whole lot more than he thought because he had $141,000. The fact is in life, if I move that out of the realm of the lottery and I will quickly that you have more than you think you have. Now, I know I'm, I'm with you. I'm one of you. Don't, don't, don't put me on a pedestal and say, well, this is preacher talking platitudes. I, I'm one of you. I live in the same crazy world. I'm as crazy busy as you are. I get it. I've got 24 hours a day, and I know what we all think. We all think that 
we don't have enough time, that we don't have enough energy, that we don't have enough money, that we don't have enough influence, that we don't have enough ability, that we don't have enough gifting, that we don't have enough knowledge to really make a difference. But here's what I want to plead with you today to understand, that you have more than you think, that the problem is not that you don't have enough. The problem is what we're doing with what we have. The problem is that we tend to take what God has given us and instead of investing it back in the kingdom of God, which is why he gave it to us in the original place, we tend to take it and spend it upon ourselves. And when we spend it upon ourselves, that's literally what we do. We spend it. But when you give it to the kingdom of God, you invest it. And you have more than you think you have. And that was the point of the story in Matthew chapter 15. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it, looking at Matthew 15. We're going to begin reading in verse number 32. It's a very familiar portion of scripture. If you've been in church any time. The Bible says in verse 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Verse 33 and his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. They took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now, those who ate were about 4,000 men, not counting the women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Thank you. You may be seated. So let me tell you where we are in the Bible. There, there has been a story right before this that Jesus had fed 5,000 people. And so there are a lot of commentators that would tell you, well, isn't this the same story? He fed 5,000 in one place, 4,000 5, men in one place, 4,000 men in the other. Maybe it's the same story in two different versions, but it's really not. There's nothing, that, nothing about it other than the miracle that is an indicator that it's the same story. As a matter of fact, we know there are two different stories. The stories had two different purposes. When Jesus fed 5,000, it's just a chapter before, that crowd was mainly made up of Jewish people. And it was a sign from God that the gospel, salvation, and heaven had come to the Jews. When we get to Matthew 15, this crowd is mainly made up of Gentile people. And this miracle became the sign or the, or, or the indicator that salvation and the gospel and heaven had now come to the Gentiles. Both were similar, but they were similar on purpose to paint the picture that the gospel was to the Jews and the Gentile alike. And so that's where we land in Matthew chapter 15. So let's walk through these verses. Let me make two or three points of application. Well, three exactly at the end of the story. Look back at verse number 32. And let me just, let me just explain the passage as we go through it. The Bible says that Jesus called the disciples to himself. And the first thing he did was have compassion on the multitude. Now, Jesus has been teaching for three days. For three days, Jesus has been doing miracles and healing the sick and the lame and the blind. So this crowd has intensified. This crowd has multiplied over the days. More sick people came to be healed. But when sick people are being healed, well, people want to see what's taking place. And so over three days, this crowd has just grown and grown and grown. And so they've been with Jesus three days. Most of them had not left. 
Most of them had not ate. Most of them had been with Jesus exclusively. And they, they didn't prepare for a three-day trip. And they're out in the wilderness and they're away from everything. And Jesus, three days in, looks at the crowd and the Bible said that he had compassion on the multitude. Now the word compassion in the Greek is the strongest form of emotion you can express. It meant mercy or pity. Or, and so and it's, a, it's as strong as an emotion as you can convey in the Greek. And so Jesus looks out at the multitude and he has this overpowering emotion. You might say it this way, that Jesus has a broken heart for those who are hurting. And so he looked at the disciples and he said, I don't want to send this crowd away hungry. My heart breaks for their need unless they faint in the way. And in verse 33, he's indicated that the disciples had already been having this conversation. The disciples had already been talking about how much food do you have. And so they, they already know, they kind of know Jesus. Like they kind of know that, that he, he could do something here. But they don't think, in all honesty, even though that you say, well, how can they have such little faith? Well, the, at this point, the disciples believe, of course, he would do a miracle for the Jews, but he's surely not going to do one for the Gentiles. That tells you a little bit of the thinking in the day. But they looked at Jesus, and Jesus said, I don't want to send them away hungry. And they already, they already done the math, and they're saying, well, hey, Jesus, where could we find enough bread in the wilderness? I mean, Jesus, we're in the middle of nowhere. Where in the world are we going to get enough food to feed all of these hungry people? And I love what happens next. Jesus said, well, how many loaves do you have here? And I love it because they've already counted. Jesus didn't say, count, tell me how much food you have. They've already counted. They've already talked about it. And because they kind of know how Jesus is, you know, they're like, he's probably going to feed, he's probably going to take our food from us. We know how he is. And so they said, well, we, we got, we've already counted for our lunch. We don't even have enough for our lunch, Jesus. There's 12 of us and we've got seven lunch-sized portions of bread and we've got a few little fish. Now, you have to get the word fish in perspective. It was not uh, like, it wasn't 20-pound bass. There were a few little fish. You, the, the fish they used that they traveled with, that they might have packed their lunch with, was basically a dried sardine. And so they said, geez, we've done the math already, and we've got seven loaves of bread and a few little fish, so we're going to make about six fish stick sandwiches, and we're going to split them up between ourselves. Jesus didn't say anything, but he com- the Bible says in the next verse that he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. That's, that's important because Jesus was telling them, Jesus was telling, well, in all probability, if 4,000 men, probably the lowest estimate you could come up with would be 10,000 people, some as high as 20, 25,000 people are there. And so uh, he, he said, he tell them all to sit down on the ground. That is, get ready for lunch. That's why he told them to sit down. And so the Bible says that he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks. Now, the word give thanks there in the Greek is a powerful word. It's where we get our, I'll transliterate the word. This is, this is one of the hardest Greek words I could pronounce, so I'm not going to try. It, it was difficult. I listened to trying to figure out how to pronounce it. I just, my North Georgia dialect won't let me do it, and you don't care anyway. But the transliterated word is the word Eucharist. And you've heard the word Eucharist. It means to give thanks or to, or to be thankful. And when the Bible says Jesus gave thanks. That 
It was the word Eucharist. Now, the word Eucharist is also associated with the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, some denominations, they substitute the, the word communion for the word Eucharist because it means a giving of thanks. And so they've actually adopted that terminology to mean communion. But that's the word Jesus used there in Matthew, that he gave thanks, that, that he performed the Eucharist over this meal. And the Bible says that he broke it and gave him them to his disciples, and the disciples gave it to the multitude. So now I just want you to put yourself in Peter's place. I want you to think about being one of the disciples. Jesus has just taken your half a dozen fish stick sandwiches away from you. He has blessed them. He is now breaking all that stuff in half and he hands it to Peter. I'm just going to tell you, you know how sometimes when you say the blessing at home, you can open your eyes and somebody's not got their eyes closed? <laughs> Peter's rolling his eyes. He's like, oh. He's taking my fish sticks away from me and my sandwich. And he says, all right, boys, I'm going to break this. I'm going to give it to you. And I just want you to start distributing it, distributing it to the perhaps tens of thousands of people that are here. And you see Peter walking because he's kind of the loud mouth of the group. And Judas is the mathematician of the group, the, the traitor. And he's angry about the whole thing and and Peter's sarcastic about the whole thing and he's like great I brought my lunch I don't think it's fair that God takes my Jesus takes my lunch and gives it somebody else but whatever I'll go hungry for you know Jesus sake I'll suffer for the cross and so he carries this out and he hands it out and he's going back to Jesus and he's thinking well there's not gonna be anything left and he goes back and Jesus hands him another loaf broken in half and some fish and now he thinks great the other disciples aren't even pulling their own weight I'm having to carry it all to everybody and it went on, and it went on, and it went on. And after seven loaves where Peter knew it was all gone, he had personally carried more of it away. He goes back to Jesus, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And this goes on. It had to go on for hours as the disciples just kept distributing food out, out to people. And at some point, Peter had to say, hey, give me more than one sandwich. Let me carry multiple sandwiches out here. And Jesus break it off so that the Bible says that they kept handing out the food. But the Bible says in the next verse, I love this, that they all ate Everybody ate, but it's even more important than that. They were all filled. Not only that, they gave out food till it was boring. And the, all thousands of people ate and the disciples ate. And the Bible says that at the end, they took up seven baskets full. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. When Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And that word in the Greek is the word... Uh, uh, kofinos, and it meant a like a large picnic basket. This work in the Greek is spurious, and it means a basket large enough to hold a person. There's several instances in the Bible where they were in this type basket. Paul was put in this size basket and lowered down over a wall. That there was so much left over that everybody ate. And listen, they just didn't eat. They were filled, the Bible says. So much so that after the disciples and everyone ate, there were seven baskets left over that humans could fit in. And so then it, it gives us the count. If anybody ever wonders why you count at church, why you talk about numbers, God counts everything. And so we counted. And there were 4,000 men, not counting the women and the children. Lowest estimate, 10,000. High estimate, some is 20 or 20. 5,000 people. Now there's the basics of the story. 
But wrapped up in that story is something you need to know about serving God. Listen, I want to say this. What I'm going to tell you today is a blessing from the Lord. It doesn't apply to people who are far from God. It doesn't apply to people who, who know God and aren't pursuing them. This is a Bible passage that applies to those. It starts off in verse 32 saying it. Those who are followers, those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to leave this. I want you to leave understanding you have more than you think. So let me, let me dive into the text and let me just make three. Three, three points I want you to know this morning. Number one is this. Here's what the story would tell us. Number one is this. Don't think, feel. Don't think, feel. The disciples looked at the crowd and they had growling stomachs. They were hungry and they decided uh, something quickly. They decided that everybody else was hungry and there was nothing they could do about it. Have you ever had supper come over, uh, a company come over about supper time, ladies, and you've got, you've got supper on the stove, but all you have enough, you only cooked enough to feed you and your family, maybe you and your kids, and now company is standing at the door, and everybody in your family's hungry, and the kids are making noise, and daddy's hungry, and you're hungry, and your stomach's growling, but you don't have enough to offer anybody else. You gladly would, because you're that kind of person, but you don't have enough to offer anybody else, and so what do you do? You keep them at the door. And supper is wafting through the house and you can smell it and they can smell it and you think they're waiting on you to offer them. But if you know if you offer them, your kids are going to go hungry. So what do you do? You just wait them out, don't you? You just wait them out. I can talk to you as long, but you're not coming in the house. You're standing right here. Because my stomach's growling, everybody's stomach's growling, we can fake it for a little while. And that's exactly how the disciples were feeling right now. The disciples were thinking, hey, we can wait them out a little bit, Jesus, but our stomachs are growling. Lunch is on the stove. We are ready to eat. And that's where they are. But they look out and Jesus said, well, all these people are hungry. And the disciples looked out at the crowd with growling stomachs. And they decided something quickly. Here's what they decided. That the need was greater than the feed. They didn't have enough food to feed that crowd. They'd already combined their lunches and they didn't really have enough to feed themselves. And they looked out and saw thousands of people. And there wasn't a restaurant in Israel that could have fed one one hundredth of that. But besides, they were not in a city. They were out in the wilderness. And so they came to a logistical decision. Verse 33. We don't have enough. But Jesus in verse 32 had already came to an emotional decision. He had compassion on the crowd. Now, church, look right this way. The disciples saw the need and thought logistics. Jesus saw the need and felt compassion. Now, I look right this way because this may be the most important point I'm going to say today. If we aren't careful in the Christian life, we relegate serving God to adding up the numbers. And we'll add up the numbers and we'll determine we don't have enough time to serve God. Preacher, when I add it up and I'm early in the morning, I work hard all day and I come home at night, there's not enough time to serve God. You'll add it up and you'll say, preacher, I don't have enough energy to serve God. I don't have enough, I don't have enough money to tithe. I don't have enough money to give. I don't have enough ability to make a difference. I don't have enough gifting to make a difference. And we're spending our time doing the math. But God looks out at a hurting world and his heart breaks for those in need. And here's what I want you to hear. When it comes to serving God, the first step in the process is not to do the math. The first step in the process is to have a broken heart. 
The first step in serving God is compassion. The first step is seeing the deed, not doing the math. Listen, I love this. When I do the math, I see the possible. When I see the need, I ask God for the impossible. When I do the math, I see what can be done humanly. But when I get a broken heart for the need, I begin to ask God what can happen in the impossible. And here's what you'll learn in the Christian life. Listen, leave the math up to God. Numbers bow before Jesus. He can do math. You can't do You'll find out when you're serving God, the numbers may tell you one thing, but your heart, your heart will tell you something else. I don't mean to pick on anybody. I don't mean to pick on why, but men, have you ever came home from work? You ever came home from work and everything in the house be exactly as it should be? I mean, the house is not on fire. You walk in and maybe supper's on the stove. The house is clean. Your wife is not brandishing a weapon at you. Her eyes are not red in the pupils. Her head is not spinning awkwardly around on her neck and she's not levitating in the air. And you ask her what's going on and you get a good answer. She says something like, fine. How's it going, honey? Fine. Good. Perfect. Or the dreaded, you tell me. (laughs) I mean, when you're giving your statement to the policeman later on in the evening... You can say everything was exactly as it should be. The numbers said made sense. Your head said, take that good answer and go on. I mean, everything was right. Everything this night looked like the night before, but there was something different. Your heart said to you, lean in a little bit. I mean, everything added up. Two plus two made four in your head. But your heart said, eh, time out. Lean in just a little bit. Don't think, feel. And a wise husband doesn't take fine as an answer. Doesn't wait before a weapon is brandished or they levitate in the air. A good husband can feel when something's not right. Can I say to you, I am not saying to you as your pastor, I am not advocating you doing something stupid in your life or in the church. God did give us a brain and God expects us to use your brain. But here's what I am saying, that when it comes to serving God, lead with compassion for the need that is around you. The first step is seeing the hurt. The first step is getting a broken heart. And that sets the tone for everything else you're going to do. Listen, when it comes to inviting people to church. Listen, you you ought to be inviting everybody you know to church. You ought to be inviting everybody you know to come hear the gospel. But if you're not careful, here's what the enemy will do. The enemy will have you doing the math, and he'll tell you how hard it is. He's going to tell you you're probably going to get a no. He's going to tell you you might get embarrassed. And if you're not careful, the enemy will have you doing the math. But here's what God wants you to do. God wants you to see them as lost and on their way to hell. And when you do that, you don't worry about the math anymore. God wants you to help somebody that's hurting. If you're not careful, the enemy will just have you adding up what it'll cost you. How much time it's going to cost, how much money it's going to cost, how much energy it's going to cost, how much effort it's going to cost. Or you can be like Jesus and feel the pain and do what Jesus would do. 
Hey, that's true if it comes to giving. That's true when it comes to tithing. That's true when it comes to serving in the church. That's true when it comes to your time. Listen, you have more than you think, but you'll never see it doing the math. Think, don't feel. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I'm where you are. I'm one of you. I got 24 hours in a day. Anybody here got 25 hours in a day? No? No no 26? No? No, I, I get it. I get it. I'm where you are, but listen to me carefully. When you find yourself doing the math and telling God what you can't do, it's time to stop and to look at the need that God's calling you to meet and stop and say a prayer and say, Lord, I, don't, I can't figure out how I can serve you. I can't figure out how I can be obedient. I can't do the math and get there, but here's what I know. I see the need, and I want my heart to break like Jesus' heart. Don't think, feel. You say, what do I do when that happens and the math doesn't still add up? That leads me to the second point quickly, and that's number two is this. Put what's in your hands in his hands. The disciples had seven loaves of bread and a few little fish for themselves and over 10,000 people, but honestly, it wasn't enough. You couldn't slice the bread thin enough to make it work, and even if you could, no one was going to be satisfied with that little bit. There was only one way to make that little do so much, and that was take it out of their hands and put it in Jesus' hands. Take the seven loaves and the few little fish, get it out of their lunch pail, and hand it over to Jesus. And when they hand it over to Jesus, they put what was in their hands in his hands. It made all the difference in the world. Little as was much when it got in the hands of Jesus and here's what I want to tell you in their hands it was a little bit in God's hands it was much in their hands it could feed a few in God's hands it could feed a few thousand in their hands no one was satisfied in God's hands all would be satisfied in their hands many would faint in God's hands all would be revived in their hands hunger would rule the day and in God's hands fulfillment would be the order of the hour all they had to do was to take what was in their hands And put it in God's hands. And I know you don't think you have much to offer the kingdom of God today. That's because you're holding on to it as tightly as you can in your hand. And God's will is that you take it out of your hand and put it in his. Why? Because God can do more with your time, your money, your health, your resources, your focus than you can give it to him. Listen, I, I I, I can throw a baseball. Like, I really can. I can catch a baseball. Matter of fact, you don't know this, but for two years in a row, I have been on the Peavine softball team. I have. I have. And I've played one game and been to one practice in two years. <laughs> and the last, the last game I played was last year. And uh, 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 I, there are people who testify this. I, I, at least in the outfield, I, I did awesome. I ended the game on a sliding catch out in left field. I caught everything that was hit my way. You say you're bragging. No, but, well, maybe a little bit. But, I, I mean, I called everything that was hit my way. I did. I called it all. And so some of the guys have asked me if I want to play again. And I keep saying, I'm thinking about just retiring on that last catch because it's all downhill from there. Because I can play softball. I can play baseball. I can hit a baseball. But if you take, take it out of my hands and you put it in Freddie Freeman's hands, he, he can do a lot more with it. I have a set of golf clubs. I haven't played golf in 10 years, but I have a set of, I have a set of ping twos in my basement, and I've got a few golf balls in there, and, and I can hit a golf ball. Matter of fact, when I swing a golf club, most of the time I hit the golf ball. Most of the time. Matter of fact, I feel like the way I play golf, I get more bang for my buck because I get to swing it 150 times. 
Some of you only swing it like 80 times when you play golf, so I get more for my money. But you take the golf clubs out of my hand and you put them into Roy McElroy's hands, and all of a sudden, you, he can do more with it. You know, I can cook. I cannot cook. I can cook enough to keep me alive. If you came to my house and you were starving, I could do something. But you take the kitchen out of my hands and you put it in my wife's hands and all of a sudden I go from being able to eat to being able to eat well. There's a big difference between those two. Here's what I'm saying. There's some things that if you get them out of my hands and you get them into somebody else's hands who knows what they're doing, it makes a big, big difference. And I want you to learn that lesson about serving God that whatever you have to give... And you say, preacher, what does it mean to get it out of my hands and get it in his hands? Here's what that means. That means you stop doing things your way and you start doing things God's way out of your hands into his. Uh, I mean, that means that you take your finances and instead of managing your finances the way you want to manage them, you manage them the way God wants to manage them and it will be better for your finances that way. You take your marriage and you quit trying to do the best you can and you start doing your marriage the way God wants your marriage done. That's taking it out of your, his, your hands and put it into his. You take your time, you take your energy and you stop managing that yourself and you start managing it the way God wants it managed. You you're, you're putting what's in your hands and God's, and here's the truth. When you get it out of your management and you put it under God's management, incredible things start to happen. And that leads me to my third point. And that is if you give handfuls, you'll get basketfuls. They gave Jesus a handful of food. Jesus blessed it and started breaking off lunch-sized portions, portions and giving it to his disciples to hand out. The 12 would wander around the crowd, no doubt, and hand it out. And on the way back, be thinking, well, this is ridiculous. All, that's all we had, and I just gave it away. And Jesus going to make us starve to feed strangers. Except an amazing thing happened. No matter how many times they went back for more, there was always more to get. And they never ran out. And the bread multiplied, and so they got bored with it, and they ran out of baskets. Now close your Bibles. Let me, let me finish up. Two minutes, three minutes, and I'm done. I know today that you think you don't have but a handful to give. I get it. I, I, I am and have been where you are. I just want to remind you that little can be much when you give it to God. Now, listen carefully. Look this way. I am not preaching a prosperity gospel. You can go home and turn on your television. There's going to be a preacher on there that tells you if you give him all of your money that you'll have a Mercedes in the, in, in the garage when you get home. And you think that's funny, but that's exactly what they say. I, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm just telling you that God has a way of giving us back a whole lot more than we give. Now, again, I'm not preaching on Monday, but there's so many verses that say that. In the book of Malachi chapter 3, God said, bring the tithe into the storehouse and I'll open the windows of heaven. Right? That's that principle that we see in Matthew chapter 15. You bring the tithes and I'll open the windows of heaven. Here's the truth. There is always a great return on your investment with God. There's always a greater return. When you give God a handful, God has a way of giving you back a basket full. Almost everybody's heard of Jeff Bezos. He announced this. He's 
He's the founder and owner of Amazon.com. How many of you have ordered something off Amazon this week? Let me see your hand. This week, just this week. Quite a bit of it. He just announced this week that he was given $2 billion to charity to create a day one fund to help preschools and homeless families. Now that $2 billion, that is an enormous amount of money. But just put in perspective, Jeff Bezos is worth $164 billion, according to Bloomberg, and he is the wealthiest person on the planet. Now compare that to you. Um, the average American's median household total wealth is $97,300, according to the Federal Reserve 2016 data. So everything Bezos does is on a grander scale. So spending $2 billion on a charity is in effect as if you spent $1,187. Hey, do you want me to put everything in perspective? Like if Jeff Bezos spent this much money on it, how much would it cost you if all things being equal? Here, here's one. The world's most expensive yacht is $400 million. If Jeff bought that yacht, it cost him $400 million. Comparatively, using the same percentage of your income, if you bought that yacht, it would cost you $237. A median-priced home in Seattle is $754,000. If Jeff Bezos bought it, that's what it cost him. Comparatively speaking, if you spent the same percentage of your income on that house, it would cost you $0.45. Cents. A Princeton tuition, college at tuition, for four years is $294,000. That's what Jeff would spend on it. You would spend 17 cents. You want a new Porsche, $200,000? That costs you 12 cents. You want courtside tickets for the Golden State Warriors? It costs Jeff $110,000. In comparison, it would cost you seven cents. So why do you tell us all that? Here's what that really means. What feels like a lot to you it's really nothing compared to what Jeff has in his bank account. And I tell you that because I don't care about what Jeff has, but here's what I want you to understand. If that's true, earthly speaking, that's a million times more true to God that what feels like a lot in your hands is not a lot to God. That's why you can give him a handful and he has the ability to give you back a basketful. I know what you're thinking. You're too busy. You don't have enough time. But I'm telling you, if you'll give time to serve God, he has a way of lengthening your days. I know you're worried about tithing and giving your money to God, but here's what I know. God will make the 90% go farther than the 100% to go. If you'll get, will go, if you'll give it to him, that's why you've got to give your family to God. That's why you have to give your marriage to God. That's why you have to give your energy and resources, abilities, and gift to God. Are you holding on tight? Because you have handfuls. But if you give it to God, he can give back basketfuls. Josh, come get a song together. The whole point I've been trying to make today is you have more than you think. And by that I mean don't think, feel. You have a purpose. You have a design from God that you're supposed to be giving your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is supposed to be spent serving the kingdom of God. The only way you're going to do that is if you decide not to think but to feel. Quit doing the math. 
and start seeing the need. The only way you're going to give your life for your purpose God has called you to do is to take what's in your hands and put it in your hands and start managing your life the way you want it managed and start managing your life the way God says to manage it. But it's not all give. I mean, you've heard this said probably so many times. We don't give to get, but the truth is with God. When you give, you get. And you tend to give handfuls and God gives back basketfuls. So would you stand with me? There's so many ways to apply that, but I'm going to wrap the sermon up. And tell you this, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, I know it feels like I'm asking a lot to give your life to God. Hey, church, this is a good place to say amen when I say it. Listen, if you give your life to God, you know what he gives you back? Abundant life. Amen. You give him a handful, he gives you back basketfuls. And there's some of you here today that you need to give your life to God. And it's as simple as ABC. A, admit you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. Can't earn your way to heaven, work your way to heaven. None of that. B, you've got to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. And C, you've got to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A, B, C, admit, believe, and confess. In just a moment. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.